Welcome to the Enchanted Library, where we turn the pages of books, beautiful and old, living and magical. It's time to curl up, get cozy, and join us on an adventure. Today we're reading in The Wonder Book by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Golden Touch. Whether Midas slept as usual that night, the story does not say. Awake or asleep, however, his mind was probably in the state of a child's, to whom a beautiful new plaything had been promised in the morning. At any rate, day had hardly peeped over the hills when King Midas was broad awake, and stretching his arms out of bed, began to touch the objects that were within reach. He was anxious to prove whether the golden touch had really come, according to the stranger's promise. So he laid a finger on the chair by the bedside, and on various other things, but was grievously disappointed to perceive that they remained of exactly the same substance as before. Indeed, he felt very much afraid that he had only dreamed about the lustrous stranger, or else that the latter had been making game of him. And what a miserable affair it would be if, after all his hopes, Midas must content himself with what little gold he could scrape together by ordinary means, instead of creating it by a touch. All this while, it was only the gray of morning, with but a streak of brightness along the edge of the sky, where Midas could not see it. He lay in a very disconsolate mood, regretting the downfall of his hopes, and kept growing sadder and sadder, until the earliest sunbeam shone through the window and gilded the ceiling over his head. It seemed to Midas that this bright yellow sunbeam was reflected in a rather singular way on the right covering of his bed. Looking more closely, what was his astonishment and delight when he found that this linen fabric had been transmuted to what seemed a woven texture of the purest and brightest gold. The golden touch had come to him with the first sunbeam. Midas started up in a kind of joyful frenzy and ran about the room, grasping at everything that happened to be in his way. He seized one of the bedposts, and it became immediately a fluted golden pillar. He pulled aside a window curtain in order to admit a clear spectacle of the wonders which he was performing, and the tassel grew heavy in his hand, a mass of gold. He took up a book from the table. At his first touch, it assumed the appearance of such a splendidly bound and gilt-edged volume as one often meets with nowadays. But on his running his fingers through the leaves, behold, it was a bundle of thin golden plates in which all the wisdom of the book had grown illegible. He hurriedly put on his clothes and was enraptured to see himself in a magnificent suit of gold cloth, which retained its flexibility and softness, although it burdened him a little with its weight. He drew out his handkerchief, which little Marigold had hemmed for him. That was likewise gold, with the dear child's neat and pretty stitches running all along the border in gold thread. Somehow or other, this last transformation did not quite please King Midas. He would rather have had his little daughter's handiwork should have remained just the same as when she climbed his knee and put it into his hand. But it was not worthwhile to vex himself about a trifle. Midas now took his spectacles from his pocket and put them on his nose, in order that he might be able to see more distinctly what he was about. In those days, spectacles for common people had not been invented, but were already worn by kings. Else, how could Midas have any? To his great perplexity, however... 
excellent as the glasses were, he discovered that he could not possibly see through them. But this was the most natural thing in the world, for on taking them off, the transparent crystals turned out to be plates of yellow metal, and of course were worthless as spectacles, though valuable as gold. It struck Midas as rather inconvenient that, with all his wealth, he could never again be rich enough to own a pair of serviceable spectacles. "'It is no great matter, nevertheless,' said he to himself, very philosophically. "'We cannot expect any great good without it being accompanied with some small inconvenience. "'The golden touch is worth the sacrifice of a pair of spectacles, "'at least, if not of one's very eyesight. "'My own eyes will serve for ordinary purposes, "'and little Marigold will soon be old enough to read to me.'" wise King Midas was so exalted by his good fortune that the palace seemed not sufficiently spacious to contain him. He therefore went downstairs and smiled on observing that the balustrade of the staircase became a bar of burnished gold as his hand passed over it in his descent. He lifted the door latch. It was brass only moments ago, but golden when his fingers quitted it, and emerged into the garden. Here, as it happened, he found a great number of beautiful roses in full bloom, and others in all the stages of lovely bud and blossom. Very delicious was their fragrance in the morning breeze. Their delicate blush was one of the fairest sights of the world. So gentle, so modest, and so full of street tranquility did these roses seem to be. But Midas knew a way to make them far more precious, according to his way of thinking, than roses had ever been before. So he took great pains in going from bush to bush and exercised his magic touch most indefatigably until every individual flower and bud, and even the worms at the heart of some of them, were changed to gold. By the time this good work was completed, King Midas was summoned to breakfast, and as the morning air had given him an excellent appetite, he made haste back to the palace. What was usually a king's breakfast in the days of Midas, I really do not know and cannot stop now to investigate. To my best of my belief, however, in this particular morning, the breakfast consisted of hot cakes, some nice little brook trout, roasted potatoes, fresh boiled eggs, and coffee for King Midas himself, and a bowl of bread and milk for his daughter Marigold. At all events, this is a breakfast fit to be set before a king, and whether he had it or not, King Midas could not have had a better. Little Marigold had not yet made her appearance. Her father ordered her to be called, and seating himself at the table, awaited the child's coming in order to begin his own breakfast. To do Midas justice, he really loved his daughter, and loved her so much the more this morning, on account of the good fortune which had befallen him. It was not a great while before he heard her coming along the passageway, crying bitterly. This circumstance surprised him, because Marigold was one of the cheerfulest little people whom you would see on a summer's day, and hardly shed a thimble full of tears in a twelve-month. When Midas heard her sobs, he determined to put little Marigold in better spirits, by an agreeable surprise. So leaning across the table, he touched his daughter's bowl, which was a china one with pretty figures all around it, and transmuted it to gleaming gold. Meanwhile, Marigold slowly and disconsolately opened the door, and showed herself with her apron at her eyes, still sobbing as if her heart would break. "'How now, my little lady?' cried Midas. "'Pray, what is the matter with you this bright morning?' Marigold, without taking the apron from her eyes, held out her hand, in which was one of the roses which Midas had so recently transmuted. "'Beautiful!' exclaimed her father. "'And what is there in this magnificent golden rose to make you cry?' 
Oh, dear father, answered the child, as well as her sobs would let her. It is not beautiful, but the ugliest flower that ever grew. As soon as I was dressed, I ran into the garden to gather some roses for you, because I know you like them, and like them the better when gathered by your little daughter. But, oh, dear, dear me, what do you think has happened? Such a misfortune! All the beautiful roses that smelled so sweetly and had so many lovely blushes are blighted and spoilt. They're grown quite yellow, as you see this one, and have no longer any fragrance. What can be the matter with them? Oh, my dear little girl, pray don't cry about it, said Midas, who was ashamed to confess that he himself had wrought the change which so greatly afflicted her. Sit down and eat your bread and milk. You will find it easy enough to exchange a golden rose like that, which will last hundreds of years, for an ordinary one which would wither in a day. I don't care for such roses as this, cried little Marigold, tossing it contemptuously away. It has no smell, and the hard petals prick my nose. The child now sat down to table, but was so occupied with her grief for the blighted roses that she did not even notice the wonderful transmutation of her china bowl. Perhaps this was all the better, for Marigold was accustomed to take pleasure in looking at the queer figures and strange trees and houses that were painted on the circumference of the bowl, and these ornaments were now entirely lost in the yellow hue of the metal. Midas, meanwhile, had poured out a cup of coffee. And, as a matter of course, the coffee pot, whatever metal it may have been when he took it up, was gold when he set it down. He thought to himself that it was a rather extravagant style of splendor, in a king of his simple habits, to breakfast off a service of gold, and began to be puzzled with the difficulty of keeping his treasure safe. The cupboard and kitchen would no longer be a secure place of deposit for articles so valuable as golden bowls and teapots. Amid these thoughts, he lifted a spoonful of coffee to his lips, and, sipping it, was astonished to perceive that the instant his lips touched the liquid, it became molten gold, and the next moment hardened into a lump. Ha! exclaimed Midas, rather aghast. What is the matter, father? asked little Marigold, gazing at him with the tears still standing in her eyes. Nothing, child, nothing, said Midas. Eat your milk before it gets quite cold. He took one of the nice little trouts on his plate, and, by way of experiment, touched its tail with his finger. To his horror, it immediately transmuted from an admirably fried brook trout into a goldfish, though not one of those goldfishes which people often keep in glass globes as ornaments for the parlor. No, but it was really a metallic fish, and looked as if it had been very cunningly made by the nicest goldsmith in the world. Its little bones were now golden wires, its fins and tail were thin plates of gold, and there were the marks of a fork in it, and all the delicate, frothy appearance of a nicely fried fish, exactly imitated in metal. A very pretty piece of work, as you may suppose. Only King Midas, just as that moment, would have much rather had a real trout in his dish than this elaborate and valuable imitation of one. I don't quite see, thought he to himself how I am to get any breakfast. He took one of the smoking hot cakes and had scarcely broken it when, to his cruel mortification, though a moment before it had been of the whitest wheat, it assumed the yellow hue of Indian meal. To say the truth, if it had really been a hot Indian cake, Midas would have prized it a good deal more than he now did, when its solidity and increased weight made him too bitterly sensible that it was gold. Almost in despair, he helped himself to a boiled egg, which immediately underwent a change similar to those of the trout and the cake. 
the egg indeed might have been mistaken for one of those which the famous goose in the storybook was in the habit of laying. But King Midas was the only goose that had anything to do with the matter. Well, this is a quandary, thought he, leaning back in his chair and looking quite enviously at little Marigold, who was now eating her bread and milk with great satisfaction. Such a costly breakfast before me, and nothing that can be eaten. Hoping that, by dint of great dispatch, he might avoid what now he felt to be an inconsiderable inconvenience, King Midas next snatched a hot potato, and attempted to cram it in his mouth and swallow it in a hurry. But the golden touch was too nimble for him. He found his mouth full, not of mealy potato, but of solid metal, which so burnt his tongue that he roared aloud, and jumping up from the table, began to dance and stamp about the room, both with pain and affright. "'Father, dear father!' cried little Marigold, who was a very affectionate child. "'Pray, what is the matter? Have you burnt your mouth?' "'Oh, dear child,' groaned Midas dolefully, "'I don't know what is to become of your poor father.' And truly, my dear little folks, did you ever hear of such a pitiable case in all your lives? Here was the richest breakfast that could be set before a king, and its very riches made it absolutely good for nothing. The poorest laborer, sitting down to his crust of bread and cup of water, was far better off than King Midas, whose delicate food was really worth its weight in gold. And what was to be done? Already at breakfast, Midas was excessively hungry. Would he be less so at dinner time? And how ravenous would his appetite for supper, which most undoubtedly consist of the same sort of indigestible dishes as those now before him? How many days, think you, would he survive on a continuance of this rich fare? Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and share our podcast with a friend. Stay connected by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash enchanted library. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash enchanted library. We appreciate your support. Until next time, friends, happy reading.